Please be seated. And let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This summer we've been looking at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, probably his first letter written. Of all the New Testament letters, this was written earliest. He has shown the relationship that he has with the church, his longing for them, that they would remain firm and steadfast in the hope of the gospel. We saw at the end of chapter 3 last week the blessing which he prays for them, that the Lord would increase their love for one another, that God himself would strengthen their hearts so that they would be holy and blameless. And now the apostle says, finally, but he says it like a preacher who's really just getting started because we're really only halfway through this book, halfway through this series. He is done with those introductory comments about his relationship with them, the news that he's heard, and now he wants to get down to what's it look like to live in light of the gospel truth. And so in some sense, finally, we're to the heart of the issue, the, the core message that we, having been loved by God, those who will be made blameless and holy in the presence of God at his return now need to live knowing that that is true. So listen as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clear instructions of your word, and yet we acknowledge that our Hearts can be resistant to your teaching. We want to live in control of our own lives. We want to make our own decisions. We want to chase our own paths and find our own freedom. And so, Lord, I pray that through the gift of your Spirit, that he would be active in our hearts, that he would convict us today of our sin, that he would strengthen us to turn from sin, that we would see your work in our hearts, that you are the God who makes us holy. And so, Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life for us, the one who has been raised from the dead. We come with confidence that he will return. We come acknowledging him to be the judge and giving him control over our lives. So we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Standing in front of a crowd of young Christians in a church, John Freeman, the founder and former president of Harvest USA. It's a ministry here in our area that, that makes the gospel known in situations where sexual integrity and sexual morality are the key issues. And so John Freeman is standing talking about the need for faithful believers 
to live with sexual integrity according to the Scriptures. But a young man in the audience interrupts him and says to the gathered crowd, you've got to be kidding me. You can't expect us to live like that today. It's not possible. Well, perhaps that's the response we might have expected the Thessalonians to give to the Apostle Paul in this section, to live with sexual integrity, to avoid sexual immorality, the command given directly to them. They might have thought, as perhaps you are tempted to think, you've got to be kidding me. Nobody can expect us to live like that Today, the Bible is, yes, it's, it's full of the kinds of stories that perhaps maybe your grandparents could live by, but not today. Nobody expects this kind of morality from us today. And it might even seem a little bit shocking that we go from these opening chapters of this letter where Paul describes his relationship with the church like a father caring for them, like a, a mother protecting her infant. He, he offers, we saw, that prayer of blessing that their love would increase, that God would make them holy. And then suddenly, we shift gears and start to get a little uncomfortable as we, as we squirm in our seats because, wait, what are we talking about now? You should avoid sexual immorality. Paul, having explained the gospel, now wants to apply it, and he chooses this issue as one that, that, that must be front and center in our lives. Because we can imagine Timothy having gone back to Thessalonica to, to find out, is the church remaining faithful? Do they, do they really still believe the gospel, or have they given it up completely? We can imagine Timothy spending time with them, seeing what their daily schedules look like, as they walked through the streets, as they joked with one another, as they described their, their patterns of behavior. Because Thessalonica, like most of the ancient world, was a place in which not only was sexual freedom and promiscuity sort of allowed, it was even explicitly required at times. The cultic practices of the city, which for, for some in the city would be their, their, their way in to their chosen profession, the cultic practices included requirements of sexuality. You had to go to the temple. Single or married, the prostitutes are there for these purposes. Female slaves were treated like property of their masters. Prostitutes were available throughout the city. And young men were encouraged, now is the time to live your best life, to do what you want, to enjoy all that this world has to offer. And actually, in the ancient Roman, ancient Roman and Greek world, they would have done things that, that we'd even be uncomfortable with. Men would keep young boys around just to pleasure them. Now, and they would even argue, think of what a good opportunity this is for this young man. I'm sending him to the best schools. And so sexual immorality, what the Bible would call immorality, was rampant. So we can imagine Timothy walking through the streets with these new believers, these brand new Christians who have lived this life, and he sees how, how they are still part of these kinds of practices. And so Paul's prohibition against sexual immorality is describing any type of sexual behavior outside the relationship 
of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. It would include fornication, adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, or bestiality. It would also include for us today the the broader categories of pornography and masturbation, sexting and coarse joking. It would impact our entertainment choices. It would impact our relationships and even our thoughts and attitudes. Now, you might already be thinking, well, shouldn't we just let private things remain private things? Like, we don't need to tell other people what to do. Whatever happens behind closed doors, consenting adults, we should be fine with it. Who does Paul think he is to insert himself into the lives of Christians telling them what their sex lives should be like? See, we're tempted to think that way still today. Or I've heard descriptions of someone who's living in sexual immorality, even knowing that God would call it such, but saying, but God wants me to be happy. Of course God would want me in this relationship because it makes me happy. Or someone who would, who would look, at the, look at the way they're living and say, but I'm so blessed to be in this spot. Deceiving themselves as to, to what is true and right and good. And so Paul is, though, as he, as he makes this command that the believers in Thessalonica must avoid sexual immorality, he doesn't merely describe the what, like what must you avoid. He's really getting at why. Why must you do this? Because it's not that they'd forgotten the commandments of God. It's not as if reading through the, the Ten Commandments, they got to that one about, about adultery and thought, well, you know, why don't we just switch it around? You shall commit adultery. Actually, there was a Bible printed in 1631 that misprinted that commandment. It left out that all-important word, not. It's called today the Wicked Bible. Thou shalt commit adultery. The, the religious leaders of the day in 1631 were not happy. They, they ordered all the copies be destroyed so that there are less than a dozen around still today. And if you were a Bible collector, you can get one for about $40,000, the last one sold. Not because I think the, the, the collector thought, well, this is a Bible that will let me do what I want to do, but it's a recognition that perhaps maybe that's the way our hearts would have written it. Would have said, we should do sexually whatever makes us happy. We should have freedom here. And now sexual morality is not the whole of holiness, but it needs to be stressed, especially among converts in a city like Thessalonica or in a culture like ours. If we're going to talk about holiness, then we have to talk about sexual integrity. And so Paul is telling them not only what they should do, but he's really, he's really telling them why. And he's doing it with urgency here. He's pleading with him. Paul will speak about sexual ethics in almost all of his letters. It comes up in the New Testament over and over again. But this is the most direct, the most pleading, the most urgent of those passages because it's this pastoral plea to them. You must, he says in verse 1, we, how we had instructed you. He says, we ask you and we urge you. Combining those verbs, building them on top of each other. He's pleading with them. It's as if he's pounding on the pulpit saying, you need to listen to this. Avoid sexual immorality. And he's showing them why. And, and we, can, we can see that, that, first of all, it's, it's for our own good. 
We need to avoid sexual immorality. We need to live lives of sexual integrity for ourselves. Look with me at at verse 4. Paul says, Each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. We must be in control of ourselves. Now, the word body there, vessel in the ancient Greek, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly what it means. Is it a euphemism? Is he speaking about, hey, you need to control all your parts and keep yourself under control? Or maybe your footnotes like mine say something that, it, that maybe he's describing the marriage relationship, but I think it's, more, it's, 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 that, it's that more broad category of we need to control ourselves. Because notice the contrast that he sets up. Either when it comes to sexuality, you will have control over yourself, or verse 5, you will live in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Paul's saying you must live as one who controls yourself, not in passionate lust. Now, lust is a word that, that we apply to, to sexual relationships, and it's pejorative. It's a negative term, but it's that, it's that description of desire which overwhelms us, and an overbearing desire of our hearts to have something. And do you see what it's saying? Either you are in control, or the lusts of your heart will control you. And so Paul is telling them, why, why, am I, why does he pick this example of sexuality to describe holiness? It's because our sexual behavior is a, is a picture of what is going on in our hearts. Our sexuality displays our spirituality. It shows the deepest recesses of what we long for. So either we will be in control and follow after God, or we will be controlled by our desires. And so for your own good, avoid sexual immorality. But Paul will also say that it's for the good of others. Because look at verse 6. As he continues the argument, he says in verse 6, And in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. No one should take from his brother that which is, doesn't belong to him. It could be a description of the, the commandment of, of not, not desiring another man's wife, taking from him what is not yours. But, it's, but I think more broadly applied, whenever we, we use our sexual desires for ourselves instead of for the other, we are taking advantage of that person. This is the, the me too moment for Paul in Thessalonica. You need to recognize that your sexual behavior will impact others, and so you cannot take advantage of them. So why? Why do we pursue sexual integrity? For our own good and for the good of others. Paul says that God has called us not to be impure, verse 7, but to live a holy life. A life that is described in the, in the language of that hymn that God is holy, 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 picking up the, the echo of, of the prophets, the echo of, of the end of Scripture, which we heard in our call to worship, that God is the one who is holy. He is the one who is pure, without blemish, without, without stain, without... And, 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 and what Paul is saying is we need lives of integrity, because if, if you were thirsty and I offered you a sip of this water, but then offered the, the caveat, but there's, you know, just one drop of an infectious disease has, has gotten in here. But it's just one drop. I mean, it's, it's almost completely water. I mean, it's, it's, it's really 99.99999% water, just, just a tiny little bit of, of an infection. Would you drink it? No. 
Because you would recognize that, that a little bit of impurity could, could lead to sickness and disease or death. And we are being called not to live impure lives, but lives that are holy, set apart for God, pure and perfected by God. It's the work of God, verse 3, to make us more and more holy. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. We sit in a sanctuary, a space that is meant to be holy for the worship of God. To be sanctified is to be made holy by God. It's the work that God is doing. Paul tells the, the believers in, in Thessalonica that this is the work that God will do in you, verse 1, more and more. Our sanctification is being made more and more holy, more and more pure as we go through life, as we strive for, for a life of, of morality, as we cast aside that which is impure. I know you, you, you might be tempted in verse 1, or even culturally today, to think that, that maybe Paul is, is just talking to the, the men in the congregation. He says, finally, brothers. But, but in Greek, like in many languages in the world today, the, the plural construct uses a, a masculine form of the noun. He's really saying, hey, guys, in the way that we would colloquially say to a gathering of men and women, because issues of sexual morality and sexual integrity are issues for men and women in the church. All of the things which we face are there in our hearts, and God is calling all of us to walk, to live according to God's call. Why? Because of what, what it does for us. It leads to freedom for ourselves what it does for others. It lets us serve them. But most importantly, and we see this emphasized again and again, why are we called to live lives of sexual integrity? Because of who God is and what he has done. I mean, when I read through that passage, or if you took a, took a pen now and circled the, the names or the actors in this, it is mostly God who is at work. Again and again, Paul is going to point to what God has done for us. He points to the authority of God. Look at verse 2. He says, he's reminding them, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. By God's authority, we're speaking to you. Jesus, the Savior of sinners, the rescuer. Jesus, who is Lord who reigns with authority over all. It is by his authority that this command comes to you. Or Paul will repeat it again, bracketing really this, this command to live lives of, of sexual integrity in verses 2 and verse 8. He comes back to this theme. Verse 8, Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man. You are rejecting God, the same God who is gracious to you and poured out his Holy Spirit upon you. I've been studying Donald Gray Barnhouse, a preacher of the, the 20th century. He pastored up at 10th Presbyterian Church, and he would regularly use an image from his own childhood. He would say to people, it's, it's when, when, I, when I preach to you, it's like the, the boy carrying the telegraph message who shows up at your door and, and knocks, and he reads to you a message. Now, if you get mad at what's written in the message, don't get mad at the boy standing at your door Get mad at the person who wrote the message. And Barnhouse would regularly tell his congregation, if this upsets you, I didn't write it. God wrote it. If you're mad about this, don't complain to me. Take it up with God. It is by his authority that it's message. Even the Apostle Paul is saying, 
I'm just a messenger boy. Paul, the great theologian of the church, an apostle who saw the risen Christ commissioned for this purpose, says, it's not by my authority. It's not as if Paul walked around Thessalonica and said, you know, how can I, how can I bring some redemption to this city? You know, if I, if I add a few rules here and there about the way people live sexually, I think this would really help. No, what Paul is saying is, I'm just the boy carrying the message. This comes by God's authority himself. Why must we obey? Because God is the one who made us, and God is the one who tells us how to live. And that means you and I then also come in the fear of the Lord. Paul is pleading with them, because look at verse 6, that we should not take advantage of one another. Look at the middle of verse 6. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. As we've already told you, and we have warned you. It's not as if Paul is writing to them now thinking, oh, I forgot to give them these instructions about what it looks like to live a life of holiness and integrity. I should have probably talked about their sexual behavior. No, Paul's saying, I already told you all of this. You already know it all. I've already taught this to you. I've warned you about the seriousness. And God is the Lord who will punish men for all such sins. And the frightening reality of that truth is that each one of us is people who are broken sexually, who have sinned sexually in thought and in deed. All of us stand under the judgment of God. This is a warning to turn from sin, to turn from the idols of our hearts, the things that our own personal desires, and to turn and follow the true and living God. God is the ultimate avenger, the one who will mete out justice and bring about holiness and righteousness. And so it's a warning to us as sinners, but it's also, it's also here a word of hope. Because when we think about our sexual lives, for many of us, we think not merely about our own sins, but the ways in which we have been sinned against. People who have used and abused us, who have harmed us. And so in this is hope for us. Dear vulnerable brother or sister, God has not abandoned you. The Lord sees the sin. The shame that you carry is not your shame. It is the shame of another. And it is a shame that Jesus Christ will ultimately deal with as he brings healing to you. But God has not forgotten the sin against you. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. They may walk out of courtrooms today as if they had not sinned, but they will not escape God's judgment. God offers to us hope. So Paul is telling them why. Why live a life of sexual integrity? Because of who God is, what he has done. You are loved by God. You are known by God. God is in relationship with you. We see that God is the one who calls us. The contrast in verse 5 is, is, is that we must not live like the heathen, those outside of the gospel, who do not know God. Do you see what he's saying? You know who God is. God has made himself known to you, and so live in relationship with God. God, in verse 7, is the one who calls us, who knows us by name, who calls us into relationship with him. He's calling us to live a holy life, but it's a life of intimacy and relationship with God. And we do all of this because of the love of God displayed for us. Look again at verse 1 as Paul is setting up this second half of this letter. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live 
in order to please God. For God to look on your actions and your behavior, your thoughts, and be pleased. Because of your love for him. You do this in the Lord Jesus. Knowing what God has done for you. Verse 3 echoes this again. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It's God's will that you should be made holy. And we sometimes think of God's will as, as in this moment, with this choice that's right in front of me, should I do that which my heart wants? Chasing after the desires of my own heart, the things the world tells me I should do, or will I follow after God's will for me? We, we sometimes narrow God's will to just this decision. And yes, it includes that. But when Paul speaks about God's will, he speaks about it through his letters. Even this letter, in a grand and glorious sense, he starts from the very beginning of history all the way to the end. He talks about Adam and Eve. God's will starts in the garden with Adam and Eve in perfect relationship and a loving marriage in which there is no shame. And yet in their sin against God, God did not abandon them, but sent Jesus Christ to be the rescuer, the one who would cleanse them, who would redeem them and restore them. And God's will starts at creation, but it stretches all the way. And so the return of Jesus Christ, we saw this at the end of verse 3, when Jesus comes in all of his holiness to make us blameless and holy, it is God's will that you be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, because what is God doing? He is making you like Jesus. He is, he is making you holy. That's why Paul, at the end of chapter 3, prays that love would increase and overflow. He prays in verse 13 of chapter 3 that God would strengthen the hearts of believers so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Paul is describing the will of God at work transforming you, not, not merely in any individual decision, although he is there. He's given you his Holy Spirit to strengthen you in those moments. That when you, when you are tempted, God empowers you to choose the good. When you fail, God's Spirit convicts you of your sin, and he shows you God's forgiveness. Because Paul is writing to people who live in a culture where sex is used for pleasure and power, Sex is used however we decide to use it. Culture that sounds much like ours, but Paul is writing to them as those who have turned to God from these idols. Flip to chapter 1 with me, verses 9 and 10. Paul, having heard a report of the ways in which the, 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 the Thessalonians' faith is at work, he says at the end of verse 9 of chapter 1, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, the contrast is to, to, to worship that which we create, that which we make, the desires of our own hearts, to make those ultimate, to, to let those standards that we've created control our lives. But he's saying you have to turn from that sin, and that's what the Thessalonians have done. They've turned from idols to serve the living and true God, the one who made you, the one who loves you, the one who has called you, the one who is making you holy. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 1 that we've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. See, while you wait, you might feel like, I, but I look like a fool. Nobody else around me lives like this. Nobody follows these kinds of standards. Nobody puts these, what feel like culturally arbitrary constraints on their lives. 
No, they, they watch what they want. They speak about what they want. I mean, you may not know the plot twist in this week's episode because you've chosen not to watch. You look a little bit strange. You may not live with the person you're dating. And people say, but, but why not? That's the only way to test a relationship. And you say, because there's a different standard. And you will feel as you wait like one who looks foolish. But listen again to verse 10 of chapter 1. We wait for God's Son from heaven. Listen to this description of who Jesus is. Whom God raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus, the rescuer, the Savior, who gave his life. Do you, do you understand the good news of the gospel? Wrath is coming against those who sin, but Jesus, in perfect obedience to God's command, who treated everyone around him with love and compassion and perfect purity, Jesus suffered on the cross and took the wrath of God for you. Now, live a life in response to the sacrifice of Jesus. Eagerly anticipate the return of Jesus. Recognize that his spirit has been poured out on you to make you holy. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, more and more made to look like Jesus, to avoid God's coming wrath because of the wrath poured out on Jesus. Why do we obey? Why should we live like this? Because it's good for us. It's good for those around us. And why should we obey? Because of who God is, what he has done for us. When, when John Freeman was interrupted by the young man who said, you've got to be kidding. You can't expect us to live like that today. It's not possible. At first he was kind of taken aback because normally, like you have done well this morning, people will just sit politely and listen. Even if you disagree, you keep those thoughts silent. And so he, he actually stopped and he thanked this young man. He thanked him for his honesty. And then acknowledged that I suspect there are others here who are thinking what you have said. How is this possible? How can I live like this? Is this really what God wants for me? But after thanking the young man, John proceeds to tell his listeners, Yes, God expects this from you. He will give you what you need to live like this, and your life will be much richer for it. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father in heaven, we are quick to live according to our own standards, quick to justify our own actions. Lord, we are those who, are, who feel much more comfortable keeping our sins hidden from others. But Lord, we, we recognize that based on the truth of your word, we cannot keep our sin hidden from you. And so Lord, help us now by the power of your spirit to come and to confess our sins, to acknowledge our brokenness. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. For those that hear this gospel without an understanding of your love, I pray that even now, they would see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection as their only hope. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we might live lives of, of integrity before you. 
that we would serve one another in love. Lord, help us to do that. Strengthen us when we face temptation. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. And do all of this for the sake of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.